0: What is the best news that you've heard so far in 2024? We're 14 days in. What's the best news you've heard in the last 365 days? What's the best news you've ever heard? I bet I can top it in the next 45 minutes. So it might not be all new news to everyone, But it's still amazing news. So we're going to jump right into it. Uh, Hebrews 8, let me encourage you to turn there now. I haven't preached the last two weeks, so if I'm doing my math correctly, I think that means I get to preach three times as long today. We won't do that. But we are going to jump right in. You know, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Hebrews, so let's just kind of get everyone up to speed, make sure we recall where we've been. The book of Hebrews is written to exhort Christians who were tempted to revert back to Judaism to not turn away from following Jesus. And so the entire book kind of runs along two rails, the trains going along these two rails, as it were, of number one, the truth of the horribleness of apostasy, of turning away. And then second, the truth that Jesus is better. Right. So don't turn away because apostasy is terrible and Jesus is better. In chapter one, we saw that he's better than the prophets, because as the son of God, he is God's final and full revelation. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We saw in chapters 1 and 2 that Jesus is better than the angels. Because while they are ministering spirits, he is the king, the son who rolls over the universe. Chapter 2 told us that Jesus is better than Adam. Because while Adam succumbed to death in defeat, Jesus defeated death by his death. And so he reinstated humanity in its rightful place over the cosmos. In chapter 3, we learn that Jesus is better than Moses because he rules over God's house, that is his people. And therefore, we should not harden our hearts as in the rebellion, as the Israelites did in the wilderness, what we read about earlier when they grumbled and complained and walked in unbelief. Chapter 4 told us that Jesus is better than Joshua because he leads us into God's promised rest. Chapter 5 told us that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest who deals gently with the weak and wayward. Chapter 6 reminded us of the horrible consequences of turning away from Christ, as well as the avowed certainty of God's promises and oath. And then for the past couple of weeks, we've been thinking about in chapters 7 and 8, how Jesus is our Melchizedekian high priest. That is, he's the priest we need because he's unstained by sin. He's forever alive to intercede on our behalf and the only one who can offer us perfection. He's the only priest we need. He's better than all the Levitical priests. And so it is that we arrive at chapter 8, verse 6 this morning. We'll cover the rest of chapter 8 and we will have two points. The main idea of our passage is simply this. Jesus mediates the covenant that we need. Jesus mediates the covenant that we need. So look with me at Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. Away. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses six to nine entitled Out with the Old. Out with the Old. Verse 6 begins by saying that in the same way that Jesus has a better ministry than the Levitical priests and the old covenant priests, so also he mediates a better covenant. He mediates a better covenant. What is a covenant? It's not a word that you hear a lot in American society. Uh, In many ways, it's similar to a contract between two parties, but it is much more solemn. Uh, It's much deeper than that, right? So you get ads on TV, right, about how you can change your cell phone. And what does the advertiser say? Verizon or T-Mobile, whoever, they say, hey, we will actually pay you. We will incentivize you to break your contract with this, this other party, with your other company, Uh, You can change your employer and break that contract. You can break your apartment or lease. It's not really a big deal. But covenants are commitments based on loyalty and faithfulness and love. That is, a covenant is a relationship not simply based on self-interest, but also on self-giving. It's a relationship formed not only with rights, but also with responsibilities. And as such, you can't simply come and go as you please. Uh, That's why marriage, that's why church membership are typically understood as covenants, because it involves committed love. That's not generally the way I describe my relationship with my Comcast internet provider. And so, verse 7 says, If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. This is referring to the old covenant when God established at Sinai with Israel when he gave them his 10 commandments and his laws. And right, the point is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so the fact that God said in Jeremiah 31, which is where that long quotation comes from, the fact that God said, hey, we're gonna need a new covenant here, well, it's indicative of the fact that there must've been something amiss with the first one. You don't get a new one if the first one's going great. All right, so it's kind of like when you trade in your car. You don't generally go buy a new car and the next day trade it in. You trade in a 20-year-old beater, right? So for a number of years, I was driving a 1999 Nissan Maxima. It was, it was almost 20 years old when I got it, and I had bought it for $900, which tells you the condition it was in when I acquired it. It survived a move from D.C. to Kentucky, we shipped it from Kentucky to Texas because we knew it was not going to last that long. And by any standards, it was in rough shape. So I would take it for the yearly inspection, right? And you always knew, like, okay, there's probably going to be some bill. there's Something's going to come up. But y- you hope it, it's not too big. And so year after year, it was basically fine. Until one year, a friend said, hey, I've th- got this trusted mechanic. You should bring it to your inspection there. I said, okay, no problem. So I bring my... 20-year-old, I think it was exactly a 20-year-old car then. It's got like 180,000 miles on it. Bring it to the mechanic, and I got a call later that day, stating that I was lucky to be alive. The catalytic converter had completely clogged up, so that all the like poisonous toxins were being pumped back into the cab. That's right, the brake pads were non-existent. I had to drive at 11 and 5 just to keep the car going straight, and I just gotten used to it. I hadn't even noticed. Uh, The the alignment was so off. It would have required at least $7,000 in repairs to simply pass inspection. And so what did I do? I began looking for a new car, right? Because if the old one had been faultless, I would have had no occasion to look for a second. But it was precisely because it wasn't just a few scratches, right? I mean, this wasn't cosmetic. This was, it was broken, It was broken beyond repair. It was at its core undrivable and unusable, and so I needed a new car. Well, so it is with the old covenant, the one that Israel was under. That one wasn't working. There needed to be a new covenant, not the one referring to the Ten Commandments and the other laws that instituted the priesthood uh, that Israel was under. And so notice that verse 7 declares that that covenant had flaws and faults. I was actually with Zach about this last night. If you just read verse 7, and you might be a little troubled, is that implying that God's word was problematic? There was something wrong with God's commands or covenant? Like, is that what verse 7 is saying? I think verse 8 clarifies. It reads, For he finds fault with them. You see, the problem with the Old Covenant, the way that Israel related to God um, uh, for those kind of 1400 years, and 1400 BC is when it was enacted, the problem with the way Israel related to God under the Old Testament wasn't ultimately a problem with the law, it was a problem with them, the people, and their evil, unbelieving hearts. So in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul states that though the law is holy and righteous and good, sin is not. And the Old Covenant, though it was designed to bring Israel and God together, it served instead to just highlight how far apart they were. So God holds Israel at fault, as verse 8 says. And so God is going to set up a new arrangement. God is going to set up a new covenant. The problem with the Old Covenant, Old Testament and Covenant, it means the same thing. Testament is based on the Latin Covenant, I don't know what it's based on, but it's the same thing. It means the same thing. Um, The problem with the Old Testament, the problem with the Old Covenant, as it were, is that it left the people as they were. It didn't deal with the root of the problem. You can take the people out of Egypt, but it's a lot harder to take the Egypt out of the people. Uh, Right there, commitment to sin and even idolatry. So God holds Israel at fault, and God says in verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. What exactly was the problem with the old covenant? Well, look at verse 9. Verse 9 is absolutely crucial. God's going to set up a covenant, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The first half of verse nine, again, it clarifies, this is referring to the Mosaic covenant. But before we note what's, what's not amazing about the old covenant, what, what the problem was, I actually do think it's important that we, we pay attention to the first half of verse nine. Do you notice how it says, it was given on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's really important that we recognize that, that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, it's the same thing, different words, that God didn't give his people the Ten Commandments and say, hey, by the way, if you keep these, if you get like an eight out of ten, then I will save you from Egypt. It wasn't the case that they needed to earn somehow their salvation from Egypt and slavery. No, what does it say? God led them out by the hand. The foundation wasn't Israel's merit, but God's mercy. It was his grace and kindness that brought Israel out of bondage. You know, in the language, again, its I just think it's beautiful. God took them by the hand. Like a good father, the Lord led Israel safely through the wilderness. Right, I think we, we know this. When we see a parent or grandparent or aunt or uncle, uh, there's something beautiful in them taking a child by the hand, gently leading them to safety, right? You know, in a parking lot or, or along a busy street. A loving parent doesn't poke or prod with a stick from behind. Come on, move along. They don't bark from in front. Get over here. And What does a loving parent do? They take their child by the hand, and lead them to safety. So it is with God. God's affection, his love for his people, his intimacy with them was evident in his salvation of them from Egypt. Again, before we get to the problem of the Old Covenant, we have to realize it wasn't with God. Uh, The problem with the Old Covenant wasn't that God was miserly or an ogre. Uh, Listen to how Hosea 11 describes God's saving and sustaining love. Hosea 11 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to idols. Yet I was the one who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Friends, this is the love that God showed to his people under the old covenant. This is his salvation. Like a father with his son. So God cared for his people, Israel. Okay, but if that was right with the old covenant, we still haven't figured out what was wrong with it. It wasn't that he was harsh or vindictive. The problem, as verse 9 states, it's just one little phrase, but it's crucial, is that Israel did not continue in my covenant. Now, in Jeremiah 31, which is, again, where this passage is from, kind of the whole context of Jeremiah in this little section, it, it's called the, the passage of consolation. is this really sweet kind of passage in, in a pretty dark book. And so God is saying in Jeremiah 31, things are going to get better. And because of that, in here, here in Jeremiah 31, he doesn't list the litany of sins that Israel had committed. That's basically the rest of the book of Jeremiah. So to say that Israel didn't continue in my covenant, if you just look at that one little line, you might think, oh man, like, is that it? Ah, Were they just like a bit lukewarm, maybe a bit distracted from God's love? Perhaps they sometimes went off course for just a moment or two. But you know, we read part of Psalm 106 earlier, which catalogs a bit of Israel's former sins. Uh, But even then, it's not exhaustive of how blatantly Israel had rebelled against the Lord. Right, so first they grumbled and complained in the wilderness, right? God was just a few days and weeks from removing them from bondage, and they were complaining, they were anxious, they were fearful that God wasn't going to provide the bread and the water that they needed. Uh, Then they made a golden calf and worshipped it, again, just days and weeks after they had received the Ten Commandments and, you know, said to God, yeah, we will obey. Shortly thereafter, they built the golden calf. Eventually, when they got into the promised land, they succumbed to sorcery and murder and injustice and sexual immorality and worshiped false gods. And again, this wasn't like Israel had a bad week or even a bad year or even a bad decade. This was over the course of centuries of obstinate rebellion and stubborn, stiff-necked rebellion and wickedness. God sent them warnings, God sent them promises, he sent them prophets, he pleaded with his people for their own good to repent, but it was all to no avail. And so we need to understand the gravity, uh, the seriousness of their sin. You see, when God established the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, it was essentially a marriage ceremony between God and Israel. That's why the prophets regularly describe Israel's idolatry as whoring after false gods. That's why idolatry is regularly called spiritual adultery in the Old Testament. Because Israel had forsaken their marriage vows. In fact, that's why the book of Hosea exists. In Hosea, God instructs the prophet to marry a prostitute who will repeatedly be unfaithful to him. And yet Hosea is called to be faithful to his wife, Gomer, despite her treachery. And this is meant to be a picture, right? Of the Lord's steadfast love for Israel, and yet Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord. This wasn't a one-time mistake that they had committed, but regular, hard-hearted betrayal. And so when God says, they didn't continue in my covenant, what he's saying is Israel broke the marriage vow. They broke the covenant. And so the end result there at the end of verse 9, it's that so I showed no concern for them. In response to Israel abandoning the Lord, he abandoned them. The marriage was over. God was announcing all this through the prophets, and his warning sadly came true through the exile and the captivity to Babylon in 586 BC. So that's King Nebuchadnezzar. Because of Israel's unrepentant love of sin rather than God, he said to them, I'm done. Which is what the exile was all about. Now, it's actually amazing. Subsequent to the exile, the Lord actually did return to his people. He actually did show mercy to Israel. But you can kind of say, I think, that by 586 B.C., this wasn't going to work. Uh, this arrangement... It wasn't working. I think you could actually also say that. It was clear in the golden calf incident, right? So you don't have to wait 900 years to get from 1400 BC when you get the Ten Commandments to 586. You'd be like, okay, this isn't going to work out. When they build the golden calf, like 20 minutes after receiving the Ten Commandments, I think you get a clue, like, this probably isn't a match made in heaven. No pun intended. When Israel committed... The sin of the golden calf, it's as if they committed adultery on their honeymoon, as it were. And so the rest of Israel's history was just a falling after that sin of spiritual adultery. And so it is that that Old Covenant arrangement was what Jesus came to do away with. It was obviously not effective at restoring the harmony and the fellowship and delight that Adam and Eve had initially enjoyed with God in the Garden of Eden. And so it is that we need a new covenant based on new and better promises. We need the covenant that Jesus mediates. So that's what we see in our second point in verses 10 to 13, entitled, In With the New. As the quotation from Jeremiah 31 continues, I want us to notice four realities of the new covenant that are significant. Four realities of the new covenant. So first, in verse 10, we see that God's law is on the heart. Look there. We read, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. All right, so this is the first thing we learn about the new covenant, and it's the first thing because, in some sense, it's the biggest difference between the new covenant and the old covenant. It deals with the root of the issue, the crux of the matter. This is what makes the new covenant new and better. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he did for them what he did for no other nation. He gave them his Torah, right, his law, his commandments, Uh, He did this most visibly and tangibly with the Ten Commandments, which God literally, by his finger, wrote in tablets of stone. And then the rest of the laws are kind of an explanation and unpacking of those ten words, those ten commandments. This was a massive privilege for Israel, right? Every other nation in the world, every other people, did not receive God's law like they did. So if anyone's going to obey God's law, who's it going to be? Well, it's going to be Israel. Now they have the law written on tablets of stone. Of course, all humanity has a conscience, so in a sense, all people do know what God requires for them. But Israel had the distinct advantage that this law was written down clearly to them. The problem, however, as we've seen, is that the law didn't actually change their hearts. The law didn't actually produce the obedience that it required. That is so crucial. The law did not produce the obedience it required. So when God gave his law, the expectations were clearer than ever, but so also became the disobedience. Right, because the law didn't actually solve the heart of the problem, which was the heart of the people. Though the Israelites had the law written on stone tablets, it was not written upon their hearts. Again, even Moses recognized, I think probably reflecting on the golden calf incident. Moses, before he died, recognized that this wasn't going to work out, that this decisive problem hadn't been solved. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses says, right before he's about to die, he says, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Basically, Israel, oh Israel, your hearts are still wicked and only God can change your hearts. And so that's in 1400 BC, Moses is like, man, you guys need more radical surgery than what this is, and so now in the new covenant, God is going to give them the heart that they need. Now it's finally going to happen. Instead of an external law, which was only met sometimes with external obedience, now God was going to write his internal law, which produces an inward change in his people when it says that he will write his laws or instruction upon their hearts, the point is that now God's people will want to obey him. God's instruction will be the motivating and defining and animating principle in their life. Ezekiel gives parallel language to this in Ezekiel 36. uh, In the passage just before what our call to worship was. There the Lord describes the new covenant by saying, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what is behind Paul's famous words in Philippians, that God is working in you so that you both desire and do God's will. What is Paul saying there? Paul's saying that God is the one, O Christian, empowering your obedience. He is the one who's working on the inside of you so that your righteousness will come from the inside out as you walk in faith. So don't miss what's going on here. God has always been after a faithful covenant partner. But Adam failed, Israel failed. They all sinned and broke God's commands. So how can we have any hope of remaining in relationship with God? We know that we can't perfectly obey in our own strength. But Jesus was perfectly faithful. He never succumbed to sin. He perfectly enjoyed fellowship with the Father in the Spirit. And then upon his death, he inaugurated the new covenant. This new covenant that we're reading about that we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. And now he invites us into the fellowship that he alone deserves. When somebody becomes a Christian, God writes his law upon our hearts. He gives us his spirit. So that now we do keep God's law. Not perfectly. Right? Not perfectly. But sincerely and genuinely. I I remember this kind of change coming over me. I grew up in a Christian home. So... It, um, the law was external to me. I just like the Israelites, right? Like there were lots of Bibles in our home. We went to church. The, the law was out here. It was really hard to obey. Like sometimes maybe I would get it right, but my life was dominated by disobedience to God's word, not by a desire to obey God's word. Uh, the law, and it, it was external to me. I had no desire or delight in it in my inward being. And so when I came to faith, it was just the strangest thing. Like, the Bible just, like, opened up, and all of a sudden I wanted to obey. Which, if you knew me, was just crazy. Uh, If you knew me, you'd say, there's no way that he is who he was a year ago or six months ago. Now, of course, sometimes people get saved at young ages, right? And so it's hard to point to, like, okay, what was the moment when I saw my desire shift? So I'm not saying that you need to go search your history to figure out that moment. But but this is the testimony of God's people. That, yes, we struggle with sin. But what's so amazing now, as, as believers, even the desire to fight our sin is a gift from God. So that even when we fail in our fight against temptation, the very desire to obey, to fight, That is evidence of God's spirit and God's grace. That he's written his law upon our hearts. How, Christian, do you stay married to Christ? How do you know that you will be a Christian 10 years from now or tomorrow? Israel kept on sinning and abandoning the Lord. Why won't you do the same? Well, it's because if you are in Christ, God has written his law upon your heart. God requires faithfulness from his covenant partner and in the new covenant, God has given it in his son Jesus Christ and he guarantees it. He empowers and motivates and fuels the obedience that we must give and thus he keeps us in his love. It's like Augustine prayed over 1,500 years ago. He said, give what you command, O Lord, and command what you will. Like, God, give me the, obi- the ability to do what you say. I don't have that ability in me. There are so many amazing, comforting, encouraging truths around this idea. Um, I'll just give one. Yeah, I'll, I'll give one. Jeremiah 3 states, it's, it's referring to the new covenant. It says, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again, for they shall no longer follow their evil hearts. The point is that when the new covenant comes, you don't need the Ark of the Covenant anymore. You remember that box? It was at the center of the temple. It had the two tablets of stone. It had the Ten Commandments in it. Guys, you don't need it. You have the law written on your heart if you're in Christ. So Why do you need this box? God's Spirit is working in you. Therefore, take courage, O oh struggling saint. If you are weighed down in your fight against sin, are you weary in resisting temptation? I'd be encouraged to know that God is invested in your obedience. God is working for your obedience. Do you desire to serve the Lord? Do you seek to obey Him and watch in, and walk in His statutes? That desire itself is an evidence of grace even when we fall into sin. Uh, Even when we sin, the desire to fight it is a gift from the Lord. If we were on our own, we most certainly would have abandoned the Lord. We would have gone the way of Israel. We would be overwhelmed by our sin. Yet Christ died to save us. Uh, Christ died to break the power of sin in your life. So you don't have to go back to old habits. Old ways of living. Uh, Now God's spirit is the animating principle that drives our lives. Beloved, obedience is a beautiful thing. Should be really clear. Obedience does not make us right with God. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. We were, not saved because, we were not saved from good works, but we were saved to them, that we might walk in them. Just as the Israelites were first saved and then commissioned to obey, so it is in the Christian life. We've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and now his law, it's written on our hearts, so that we will not abandon the covenant, we will not forsake the Lord, but we will forever stay married to Christ. What makes the new covenant so amazing is that God fulfills both sides of the agreement. Again, this, this is really the crux of the issue. This is what makes the new covenant so much better. God, as God, commits himself in loyal love in the covenant. Right? That's what he's always done. Commits himself to Adam, commits himself to Israel. They keep failing. He promises his absolute steadfast love and naturally he calls on the human party to do the same. And so it is that the Son of God took on flesh. That's why he became one of us. Uh, God in Christ accomplishes all that we could not. And then Christ shed his own blood to inaugurate this covenant and bring us in. Now Christ writes his law on our hearts that we want to obey so that we will not forsake, we will not abandon him. And thus, the second benefit of the new covenant, which we see at the end of verse 10, uh, it's, the, it's the covenant formula. The covenant formula. It's when God says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Uh, this is one of the most important phrases in the Bible. you probably like, Scott, you say that a lot. Well, it, it's true. Uh, this is really, though, one of the most crucial phrases in the Bible. It is the gold standard of the way to indicate God's covenantal marriage-like commitment to his people. So in Exodus 6, for example, when God is telling Moses to let Pharaoh, let the people go, he tells the nation of Israel, he promises for the first time, I will take you to be my people, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. That's what the whole Exodus was about, okay, okay? Uh, Israel was to be God's bride. God was, as it were, killing the dragon and getting the girl. The point is that they might live together in a harmony and a relationship of love. He saved them in Egypt that they could delight in each other. And now it's precisely that exclusive relationship of love and fidelity, which Israel's disobedience severed, that now is no more a threat now the fellowship and harmony between God and his people is guaranteed not just for 1,400 years, but for all eternity. In Jeremiah 7, the Lord said, in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I commanded them, obey my voice so that I will be your God and you shall be my people. There's that phrase. And walk in all the way that I command you that it may go well with you. You see, when God calls for obedience from his people, it's not unreasonable. You can't stay married to someone who is determinedly and unrelentingly a faithless spouse. It's just not possible. And so now that God writes his law on our hearts, well, now the marriage union is eternal and unchanging and secure. Now this relationship of God is our God, we are his people, it's going to last for all eternity. It is secure. You don't have to to fear that in heaven someone's gonna mess it up. Uh, Sometimes my kids ask me, like, what if if I sinned in heaven? You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about that at all. The marriage union is secure. Let me encourage you to check out Jeremiah 32, uh, just a chapter after this Jeremiah 31 quote where God says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. They shall be my people and I will be their God and I will rejoice in doing them good. You want a summary of the new, t- new covenant? That's a good one. I will rejoice in doing them good. I'll put the fear of God in me, in them, so that they do not turn away f- from me. The Lord writes, lights, blah, blah. The Lord writes his law upon our hearts so that now we fear him and walk with him forever. If you think about how amazing it is that we should be God's people, he created all seven billion of us. And so, you know, and we're, we're not any better. Christian, you're not any better than somebody who's not a believer. There's nothing inherent in us that would make us worthy or beautiful or lovely to be chosen by the Lord. And so what is amazing is that God in his grace would look down and say, you're mine. He takes us from the slums of our sin, He says, you're my people. Uh, I'm your God. You're coming home with me to safety and delight and security and joy. We see the third benefit in verse 11, that we shall all know the Lord. It reads, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. In many ways, this verse parallels the second benefit we just covered. The point is not that there are not going to be teachers in the New Covenant community. Uh, the New Testament's clear about the importance of pastors and teachers. Instead, the point is that all people in the Covenant community will know the Lord, whereas that was not true in Old Testament Israel. Because when God made the covenant with the nation, there were lots of unregenerate, unsaved people who didn't love God. They were part of the physical, visible, external people of God, but they weren't truly saved. So if you think about King Saul, or Ahab, or Jezebel, all the people devoted to idolatry. But in the new covenant, every covenant member knows the Lord. You don't have to evangelize. New Covenant members. The Covenant is not a mixed community in the sense that some people are truly saved while others are not. It's relevant that when Jesus inaugurates the New Covenant in his blood, what we read earlier from Matthew 26, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, he gives the meal to his disciples. That means that the New Covenant sign of communion is given to any who follow Christ and none who don't. So it's no longer ethnic Israel that is automatically in the covenant community. Now it's people from every ethnicity, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Anyone who confesses Christ and puts their faith in him, they enter into God's covenant community. Because all people are invited to know the Lord. This is also why we don't believe here at Trinity in baptizing babies. Uh, I love what Dave prayed earlier. We are so thankful for the gifts the Lord has given us in children. Uh, We praise God for what a blessing they are, and we are so thankful for every little one the Lord entrusts to us, both as families and as a church. Uh, The reason, however, that we don't give them the Lord's Supper or we don't give them baptism is because they are not automatically, by birth, partakers of the new covenant Uh, As every parent knows, you actually do have to tell your kids, know the Lord. You do have to evangelize your little ones. In fact, that's kind of like your number one most important job description. Just as the covenant signs under the old covenant, namely circumcision, Sabbath keeping, eating the Passover meal, just as they were given to the covenant community and none outside it, so it is today. What is new and better about the new covenant is that now... Every covenant member truly knows the Lord. Um, this is why as a church, we have a, a membership role and we, we go through, you know, we have this membership process, right? We have the class, we have an interview, we ask if you've been baptized because we kind of w- want to make sure that you really know the Lord, uh, that you have put your faith in Christ, that you've trusted in him. I know that can be a bit complicated thinking about baptism, covenant, so um, definitely feel free to, to come talk to me if you have questions. Maybe we can talk after service, or we can talk over dinner tonight after the evening service. So it it can be a little bit complicated, but don't don't hesitate to reach out. Before we arrive at the, uh, now, I'm sorry, we arrive at the final benefit of the new covenant in verse 12. Look there. Verse 12 reads, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The fact remains that though we've been given God's spirit and his law is written on our hearts, we are still sinners. We are not perfect. Not yet, at least. We look forward to that day in heaven. And so we require God's forgiveness. Notice that word for at the beginning of verse 12. It indicates that forgiveness is the ground that makes all these other benefits possible. Uh, Forgiveness is foundational and essential to knowing the Lord, to being married to Christ, to walking in obedience. Forgiveness is like the foundation upon which everything else is built. It is primary, and it is according to mercy, not merit. Obedience then flows outward from forgiveness as a response to God's grace, with the result being a marriage like love. Now, the the author of Hebrews is going to spend the next two chapters, 9 and 10, really kind of honing in on forgiveness, so we'll think more about about that in the weeks to come. But don't miss this. It is God who initiates and offers forgiveness. Right, normally if you think of two parties, somebody's sinned against someone, someone's grieved them, somebody's, you know, hurt them in some way. Usually you'd think it's the offending party that initiates the reconciliation by confessing and repenting. But in the gospel... God is the one who has been sinned against, who yet draws near to us and offers us forgiveness. Though he is the one who has been transgressed against, he holds out his hands and he offers mercy. For there is full forgiveness to all who will trust in Christ. Verse 13 tells us that the old covenant was just for a time. Uh, You can see it decisively ended in 70 A.D when the Romans sacked the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. The Old Covenant was just for a time, and it existed to show Israel's sinful hearts and to reveal our need for a radical change, the kind of change that only God can give. Beloved, these four amazing truths, that God gives us new hearts freed from the love of sin, And now free, finally, to love God. Uh, Second, God's delight in never turning away from doing us good as his beloved people. Uh, The truth of the intimate knowledge of God, that all of us would know him, no matter how little or great the world may consider you. And full forgiveness. These truths, these realities, are freely offered in Christ. It is the most amazing news you will hear. Not that if you work really hard and live a good life, you might be able to inherit these, or if you come to church enough or pray enough or read your Bible enough, that God, in his grace, offers them freely. Through Christ, through his sacrificial death, he has inaugurated this new covenant. He's been resurrected from the dead to prove that he's the victorious Lord who can offer us these things. For all who come in faith, these promises are yours. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you known this great love? Have you known the covenant that Christ mediates? Let's pray. Father, we marvel that you would send your son to die the death that we deserve, that he would suffer on the bloody cross, bearing our punishment, taking our judgment, suffering as our substitute, that we can know you and enjoy you, and glorify you, and be with you forever and ever as your people, as the bride of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your love, and your tenderness, and your mercy. We thank you that you guide us by the hand. We thank you that you are not a harsh or vindictive taskmaster, but you are a patient father, that Lord Jesus, you are a tender husband, and spirit, you work in us to obey. Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to help each other in this. To walk in obedience and love. To look forward to the day when we will see Christ face to face. We pray that you would send him soon. We pray these things all in his name and for his glory. Amen.